Hi, everyone, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Lori Tharps. Before I introduce Lori, I want to thank you all for tuning in, as always, and let you know that you can now listen to Writer Mother Monster as a podcast on all major audio platforms or read the interview transcripts on writermothermonster.com. And if you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a Writer Mother Monster patron or patroness on Patreon. Your support helps make the series possible. Please also chat with us during the interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio, and we'll weave them into our conversation. And now I'm excited to introduce Lori. Lori L. Tharps' work meets at the intersection of race and real life. She is an author, journalist, educator, podcast host, and popular speaker who is inspired by the collision of culture and color and fueled by creativity and passion. Lori has served as a writer and or editor for magazines including Glamour, Parents, and Essence, and has written for the New York Times, TheRoot.com, The Washington Post, and many others. She's the author of three nonfiction books, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, Kinky Gaspacho, Life, Love, in Spain, and Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. And she's the author of the novel, Substitute Me. Lori has three kids and describes motherhood in three words as inspiring and exhausting. I agree. <laughs> Welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's so great to be here. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to uh, meet you in person here. So um, tell us about your three kids. How old are they? Sure. Um, my eldest is 19. It's so crazy to say that. Um, and then I have a 16-year-old. I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh, 19, 16, and 9. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we were talking before the before we came online here um, about those different ages, and you were telling me, which I was a little dismayed to hear, that it's still hard when your kids are older. I mentioned my daughter is four. Um, yeah. Yeah, tell me why it's, I'm sure between 9 and 19, there's, there's <laughs> all different kinds of difficulty. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing I want to say is that um, I remember when I when I had my first son, I lived in New York City. I worked at um, I was working at a magazine as working at Entertainment Weekly magazine and I was loving my life. And it never occurred to me that um, I couldn't continue my career as a journalist um, just because I had a kid. And like at that point, I felt like anything seemed possible in New York City in the late 90s. Right. And yeah, I just thought I was going to get a nanny. Life was going to go on. But um, and, and the other thing was that I knew I met a lot of women who had said, oh, I was a writer, too. And then I had kids and I couldn't anymore. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my like, oh, that's not going to be me. It wasn't fear. It was more like, well, that's not going to be me. I'm just going to figure it out. Clearly, these people just don't have enough creativity or something. Um, and then I had my son. And I remember the first year of his life, I um, I wrote one article. And it took me like the whole year. 
And I thought, oh, this is what they meant. I just remember thinking, like, there's no way this is ever going to work because this baby sleeps in 20-minute spurts. And then I'm trying to take a nap. Like, I just thought my nothing was going to work. But once he hit the one-year mark, um, uh, I actually um, I had actually written my first book right before he was born. So my book came out in February of 2001, my first book, Hair Story, and my son was born in June of 2001. Um, and then I had my second son in 2000. Four, so three years apart, and I wrote my novel when my second son was. I'm lying. I wrote a memoir first. Sorry, I can't remember the order. I just remember (laughs) the way that I wrote my. I remember that I paid for a nanny to watch my um, when my second son was a very young baby. I, I I could afford a nanny for like four hours a week. No, maybe like. Four hours a day, three days, three times a week. That's all I could afford. And that's what I said. Like, okay, so I'm going to write this book when I have this time. So when my children were really young, like babies or, you know, kind of baby daycare age, it was I could figure out how to write because I could farm them out for a certain amount of time. It was small spurts of time. But I told myself if I could just get them to leave, <laughs> somebody else, or if I could leave, actually, you know, I could just disappear that I had these very specific hours and I just forced myself to become a very efficient writer. Mm-hmm. So I never felt like I had enough time to do all the things I wanted to in terms of like being a writer, but I knew I wanted to finish a book or an article or whatever it was I was working on. I could hire somebody or get somebody to watch my children and they were literally out of sight, out of mind. As they got older, however, the, the, um, distraction of children becomes not just their physical presence, but their issues. They're, they need more. They need more than a babysitter who could take them away and let them play in the park for a few hours so you can work. You know, they, they need you to help them with their homework. They need you to help them deal with social issues. Um, they have, you know, events you know, or like classes that they have to go to, extracurriculars, and you want to be a good parent. So, of course, you sign them up for extracurriculars or whatever it might be, even if you try to be the parent like me who's like, yeah, we need to do one thing. I'm not going to be that overscheduling parent. So as their lives become more complicated, it becomes harder to make them disappear so you can have <laughs> time to write. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my big mistake. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Tell me more about when how you wrote books um, when your kids were were young. So hiring the nanny was a awesome idea. It sounds like. Um, yeah, and I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. Okay. So, and to be clear, like I say, nanny. I hate that word, nanny. Like I hired a nanny. Like this was this expendable person. Like I found this wonderful woman who was willing to take care of my child for the you know four hours, three days a week, and I actually ended up quitting my job because I couldn't hire a nanny. Like I just could not think about giving my newborn child to a stranger. Um, at the time when we lived in New York, I didn't have family members. Like I literally begged my college friends who thought I was crazy for even having a baby in my twenties. Um, and that was like 29. I was like just barely scooting across, but they thought I was insane. Um, mm-hmm. So I would beg different friends to be like, could you just come and watch my kid for a minute while I tried to walk, uh, try to write something. But, um, so I ended up quitting my magazine job and was just freelancing, which like I said, it took me a full year to write one article um, that first year. Then I got into the groove of things. 
but what I had to do very quickly, again, I didn't want to be that woman who I met on the playground who was like, it's just impossible. You're going to have to find another profession. You can't do it. I mean, I heard that multiple times and that's what was driving me. I'm like, it's, if the baby is around, if the kid is around, I can't. So I just have to figure out how I can just find X amount of hours. And because I came from deadline journalism, I did know how to write on deadlines. So I just gave myself internal deadlines. Like you have four hours to get this chapter done, or you have three hours to, you know, do the research for this article and get it done. Um, and that's what I had to do. And actually, I always credit my children for two things. One, endless sources of story ideas. I mean, endless, like almost every book I've written has something to do with my children. My memoir was um, about my experience in Spain and finding some sort of sense of black identity in Spain because I married a Spaniard. Um, Because I was like, how do I explain their existence? You know, when they ask, like, what does it mean to be black and Spanish? I was like, read the book. Right. Um, And um, my fourth book, Same Family, Different Colors, was because my children are all our three different they have three different skin tones, three different hair textures. They don't look alike. They don't look like me. They don't look like their father. And it was, it's just been a part of my parenting journey to constantly be asked, like, whose kids are those? Or are you the nanny? Um, my husband is like, oh, you adopted your children? You know, and he's like, no. And, and my kids are asked all kinds of crazy questions. So it made me say, like, I'm clearly not the only person who experiences parenthood like this, but it's got to impact your parenting. And so that was the fourth book. So. My children have truly inspired me, not just for my books, but for my articles and blog posts and all that kind of thing. Um, so they've done that. And then the other thing is they've made me really efficient. I've watched people with no kids struggle to get that first book written. And I'm like, don't ever look at me and be like, I don't have time. I just can't figure it out. I was like, I, I don't feel sorry for you <laughs> because when you have to, you do. Mm-hmm. But it's important. You figure it out. And I've heard people say, like, you know, I just stay up or I write during nap time. Um I'm not a, I need my sleep. So like, I can't stay up all night or I'm not a morning person really. So like I can get up at six, but I'm not that person who's like, I was up at four and then did no, that's not me either. But I can squeeze time out of, you know, again, pay somebody, beg somebody, do a swap with another mom, um, to get your kids out of your space and use that time to your best abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard so many mothers say that, that motherhood makes you much more efficient. And just exactly that thing, a book you might have sort of dipped in and out of for a few years, you know, mm-hmm. once you're a mom, you're kind of like, yep, if I'm committed yeah. to this book, I have to, I have to write it and I have to do it in these chunks of time. Exactly. Um, and I'm interested, um, you're one of the first, I think, who's mentioned deadline driven, um, career and how that then plays into your efficient approach to writing. Can you talk more about the deadline driven journalism background and how that intersects with um, motherhood and the efficiency that you gained there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so, you know, I, I got a master's degree in journalism at Columbia University and, you know, being a good journalist, you know, meeting deadlines, being accurate, being precise, you know, all of that, you know, you learn how to do that. And then I worked as a fact checker for the first, like, my first real jobs at different publications were as a fact checker, which you're the last person that sees, that kind of signs off on a story to whether or not it's all accurate. And you're 
your name is nowhere on the story, but you're the one that's going to get fired if there are mistakes because you're expendable, right? Fact checkers are expendable. So that idea of like, uh, you've got to do this work and you've got to get it done fast. I worked in a monthly and then, like I said, I worked at entertainment weekly. Um, and like, I'll never forget this. I was at entertainment weekly as a freelancer when Frank Sinatra died and he died on like a Friday or something. And we went to like the magazine went to the publisher on like a Tuesday. I was in the office from like Friday midnight till Tuesday, like or Monday two in the morning because I had to fact check his discography. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra made a lot of music. <laughs> I don't like Frank Sinatra. All I knew was like strangers of the night. So this was like, Oh my God. So I was literally like, okay, this song and like checking every title, make sure it was this date. And they were like, you deserve a real job. They hired me after that. They're like you proved yourself. Um, and that was like, my life was this kind of, deadline it doesn't matter you stay until it's done if you do like two o'clock in the morning checking 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 again it's a weekly and again that's not even daily news this is weekly news and it's you know who's wearing what fashion item but it still had to be super accurate like you couldn't have mistakes so it was really drilled into me in the course of working there for those many years um precision and speed like accuracy and speed and it has to be right and it has to be good. And even though I wasn't like loving the stories that I was writing necessarily, these weren't like my passion projects or anything. The skill was so good. So when I quit and was freelance, went freelance, I got a very good, I got a reputation as being that person you could assign a story to and like last minute and she'll still get it done on time. And, um, I credit that because of my deadline deadline background. And even today I've actually started um, doing some ghostwriting, which is usually very quick book turnaround. And same thing. It's like, I have a reputation of like, I can do this and hopefully no editors are watching this, but you know, they'll be like, we're going to give you like three months. Do you think you can get it done? And I'm like, Ooh, the stretch, but like I could probably get it done in a month and a half, but I'm not going to tell them that. Um, You know, but once you kind of figure out deadline, it means you have this much time to do this much work. And it usually looks like insurmountable, but you figure out how to do it by breaking things down into like, I mean, it's just like, you know, when you were in high school, you're like, okay, I got to study this whole book. So I'm going to break it down and I'll start on Friday and I'll be done by the time the test starts on Monday. Same concept. And once you've done it, you know, you can and you just apply that to whatever tiny bit of time to do a massive amount of writing mm-hmm. um, that doesn't always work like if you're really working on a beautiful novel that like just needs like slow work it's not the same as like turning out nonfiction, for example like nonfiction, kind of like there's a fact and you got to put it down even if it's creative nonfiction, there's kind of a boom 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 mm-hmm. rhythm to it. fiction is a little more you know it's like more like a like a slow cooker, you know, <laughs> marinade and there's no way you can speed. If you try to speed up a slow cooker, it doesn't work. You get hard beans, you know, you get raw meat, not going to work. So it's not like this always works, but in general, like you develop these muscles of saying, yeah, I can do this fast because I've worked in environments where you had no choice. Mm-hmm. And it, not only was it fast, but it had to be good and accurate. So you, you develop a muscle and then you can apply that to kind of any of your writing to a certain extent. 
Yeah, and I want to go back to the the nonfiction books that you've written in a second, but that's a good transition to the novel that you wrote. And I'm wondering how the process was different, as you mentioned, a different process for writing novels. <laughs> well, um, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm going to say this, and then you're gonna be like, oh, because it just contradicts everything I just said. But I actually wrote um, – so my novel is actually about a woman who hires a nanny in New York City this woman basically had the balls that I didn't have. You know, she was living this wonderful life. She's um, the book is called substitute me. And it's um, about this woman who's a PR executive in New York city pre nine 11 when like everything seemed possible and you could have whatever you wanted out of life. And um, like she had my mentality before I had my son, but after she had her son, she was like, let's get the nanny and let's get back to like that exciting life. Mm-hmm. And um the nanny, the, the book is told in alternating, um, voices of the, the woman and then the nanny she hires. Um, the woman is white and the nanny is black. They're both about the same age. They both come from similar backgrounds. Um, so it's just kind of their experience of what it's like, you know, in their particular circumstances. I had this idea of writing a story about nanny culture in New York City after I confronted it and realized that I had so many different problems with it. As a black woman, I was very much like I struggled with hiring an older black woman to hire, to watch my children. It just felt really awkward to me. Um, again, like I mentioned, I just felt odd asking a stranger to be like, I hadn't grown up with nannies, right? Like I, my mom has 10 sisters. So there was always somebody in the family who could watch my sister or myself. Right. Um, I, or my grandmother, my, my cousin's grandmother, you know, not related to me, but just like somebody we know, there was never this idea of like we had to hire somebody to watch us. So it wasn't even part of my comfort zone. So again, and also just being in this Brooklyn environment where everybody, there was the nannies on the playground. I mean, there's a whole cultural, social, cultural, like, it, um, concept that I was like, this is all so interesting. And I wanted to write a nonfiction book about nanny culture in New York City. But I was having a very hard time getting any nannies to speak to me on the record. So then I was like, maybe I should turn it into fiction. Maybe I should write this scandalous like story about a nanny who's abused. But that's not the story that came to me. Like this scene popped into my head about a nanny who is better at being a mother than the mother. Hmm. It was like this very, and this scene never actually made it into the book, but it was a very confrontational scene. And I was like, ooh. And so I had this idea and I sat on it for a while, like years a while, but the scene was always playing in my head. And like I mentioned before, I married a Spaniard. He's from the south of Spain. And one summer we went to the south to his parents' house. They live in a beautiful house, kind of in the middle of nowhere, though. Uh, and I wrote my first draft of my novel in their house because they watched my kids. <laughs> yep. I didn't, and they cooked and it was lovely. And I had this beautiful, um, beautiful room, um, this little tiny desk. And I guess I had my computer. I'm assuming I had my computer. It felt like so long ago. I was like, I had a typewriter. It wasn't that long <laughs> I had a uh, computer and I didn't have the whole day or anything. Like these people were not willing to watch my kids forever. It wasn't like a writing retreat. But it was like between getting up and the two o'clock lunch meal, I could write. And I had bought Walter Mosley's book, This is the Year You Will Write Your Novel, which I recommend to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Followed his like outline 
do this. Like, this is what you do and you'll, you'll be done. And I had an outline before I came to Spain and I sat down and I wrote and I was like, it's working. It's working. I'm actually writing a novel. It's so exciting. And I, um, printed it out in my father-in-law's office. When I left, I actually had a full draft and I think it was a month that I turned it out. Now, there were 17 other drafts after that, but the first draft, about three weeks to a month, done. That's amazing. Again, it's like, when is I going to have childcare like that? And food, so delicious. <laughs> yeah, someone else cooking for you. No kidding. You said before this um, conversation you were putting on your um, your slow cooker or your crock pot. <laughs> Yep. So it's cooking while we're talking. Exactly. Yep. I laid out snacks for my my daughter, and now I'm here. you do what you gotta do. Right? Multitask. Like whoever invented the slow cooker, the crock pot. Now I got a. What do you got? I thought yeah, like a crock pot. I have a supersonic crock pot. Whoever invented that was so smart. Oh yeah, they were probably a, a mom. If I'm not sure. a writer mom, definitely a mom. Probably. I mean, it's just the smartest yeah. thing. Like, and it took me so long to like incorporate that into my schedule my mom was like why don't you get a crock pot then you could just have the food because re- I'd always be like we're eating dinner at 10 30 because like, that's what time dinner was done she said why don't you get a crock pot I was like I don't want it when I, was started, I was like oh my god this is a genius thing Oh, yeah. I'm still holding out. My mom keeps telling me the same thing. I'm like, I don't want to leave it on all day. And like, but, um, get one. Get one. Totally. Oh, amazing. So what was your mom like? You said she's one of 10, no, 11 girls? Uh, 10 sisters and one brother. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Poor brother. Yeah, Yeah. So what kind of mom is your mom? I always credit my mom with making me a writer because she bought me a typewriter when I was eight. She was this, she had this habit of, um, I, should, I shouldn't say had, she still does, of going to, I'm from Wisconsin. I don't know what people call them in every state, but we call them rummage sales. So like yard sales, tag sales, depending what part of the country you live in. But she loved to go to yard sales. And when she, when I was eight, she came home with a, a typewriter, an antique big box, you know, Remington typewriter. And it's sitting right here next to me, actually. If my computer moved, I would show you, but I can't. So, um, And to this day, I'm like, why did you give it to me? I have an older sister. I'm like, I was eight. She gave it to me. My sister probably would have put it to better use, not abused it as much as I did, but and she doesn't know. She's she can't say for sure. Like I never was talking about being a writer or anything like that. But my mom gave me this typewriter, and um, that's when I fell in love with the idea of being a writer. Hmm. And my mother, God bless her, she she I love my mom so much. Um, I my mom's a therapist. She's a psychotherapist. She's a nurse. She's a psychotherapist. She actually ended her career as a uh, cultural anthropology professor. Um, She was always getting new degrees and she was just a very like, she like, she had a, uh, she had a subscription to natural history magazine and anything you would ask, it would always go back to the animal kingdom, like, or to nature. She could explain all things by like, like I still, my brother and I were laughing and my brother is eight years younger than me and she got, we got the same stories, you know, like some, you know, asking about like, why is it wrong to have sex, you know, when you're young or whatever. And she would be like, so the badger, <laughs> the badger 
Well, I don't even remember. There's something about a badger having an erection for like hours, and somehow that was the story. Um, but it's we're both like I don't remember the point of the story. I just remember the part about the badger having like an erection for a really long time. Um, everything you're like, what does this have to do with anything? I was like, adolescent elephants, you know, like <laughs> it's like that. So oh my, my mom God. and all of her sisters were amazing storytellers. Every time they get together, it's always like people laughing and telling, which I found out much later that most of their stories were highly exaggerated. Um, but like, um, there's just like stories. There's stories in my mom would, again, like I said, some people would just call my mom a liar. She's not a liar at all. She just exaggerates a lot, but she got, she has such great stories from being a nurse, you know, there's also like, again, my siblings and I can all be like, yeah, remember the ele- the escalator, the patient that lacerated his liver on the escalator because he didn't tie his shoes when he was walking up the escalator. So we all now like, before we, my kids, I'm like, tie your shoes. <laughs> Most of my kids don't even have ties on their shoes anymore. But it's always like, don't trip on the escalator because you could lacerate your liver. And here we are, middle-aged people ourselves. And we're still like, yeah, the lacerated liver story. Um, so many stories. Oh, my um, God. That's amazing. That's really, that's amazing. Like, my mom, I have to say, also was like, she had, she worked so much and did so much. She was a busy, like, highly educated in the sense, like I said, she was always going back to school for something or another, but she was such a good mom. Like she cooked, she baked, she sewed, she had three of us and she made us all feel like I never felt like my mom's work was more important to her, even though I know her work was important, like very important. I mean, she was saving people's lives. We knew all her patients' names and things like that. Um, but I felt like she loved us so much. Like I never, ever, ever felt like we were in the way. As an adult, I realized we were in the way. Like she could have done a lot more, but she never made us feel like that. And I just feel so grateful that she made us a priority, even while she was pursuing her own, you know, passions. And that's like, I posted on Twitter that I was doing this talk and I said that, you can be a writer and a mother, but they're both totally like to be a really good writer. I feel like you don't want to have kids because you want to be completely consumed. And when you are, I mean, I get completely consumed in my story and I want to write and I don't want to go. My daughter's like, you want to go play in the snow with me? And I'm like, not really. No, I want to finish revising my novel because I'm in it. (laughs) But then that means I'm not being a good mom. So it's that, being able to be like a deadline journalist where you're like, okay, you're going to have to be like, now this is the time for the work, the novel. And you're going to have to come out, even though the best thing is when you're on, in the flow is to keep going. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing I want, like some people, I, I don't believe when people are like, your children want to see you happy. No, they don't. They want to be happy. That's such bullshit. I feel, Oh, I really like to swear. I'm so sorry. Go for it. I think that is the biggest crock of dookie that anybody has ever told somebody to be like, your kids want you to be happy. I mean, theoretically, but no, they don't. Like, children are hardwired to be selfish. They want them to be happy. They don't have that altruistic, like, as long as my mom's happy, I'm fine being ignored. No. they If they had it their way, you know, mommy and daddy would be like, the whole time, like giving them all of their attention. They want the birthday party. They want the, and it's not even about wanting stuff, but they want mom to be like, 
listen to all the stories I have in my head. You want to hear what I dreamt last night? You want to if you're like, they don't want you to be working. Like, that's not true. Like, that is not true at all. And, um, you know, like, they want mommy to go on this business trip. No, they don't. <laughs> they want you home. That doesn't mean that you can't, you know, figure out how to, you know, go on the business trip or, you know, go on the writer's retreat or whatever you have to do, but don't fool yourself and be like, my kid wants this for me. They just, they want to see me get that Pulitzer or they want to, uh-uh. So you, you, your books want all of you and your kids want all of you and you have to figure out, you know, maybe it's seasonally, right? Like your kids get you in the summer, but come academic year, you're kind of more about the books. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's every other year. I get a book a year and a kid, you know, the kids are fully focused. Um, that would be nice if you could partial, <laughs> parcel it out that way. Yeah. But it is like, it's, it's, they're both fully all consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe your book isn't as good as it could have been if you could have been a hundred percent in it all the time, all the time. Um, but it's probably good enough. And your kid is, I mean, Kids are super resilient, so like if you if you if you slough off for maybe year one through year four, probably it's gonna be okay. They're not gonna remember. Um, but if you ignored them for four years, they'll remember and they won't develop properly. You know, their brains won't be right. Um, mm-hmm. It just my mom just told me, you know, if you hug your children, they get their better brain development. She's like I just found that out. So make sure you're hugging your, your children. Yeah. yeah. So well, and it's balanced too. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Like. You- you know, if if you have kids and you're a writer, then you can't be 100 percent for both at the same time. Right. So exactly. it's not it's not. And that's what I was. It's not impossible at all. It's just you have to figure out. And I feel like you can train your children in a way that's like when mommy's in her writing room, you know, you have to respect that or something. And of course, it's not going to hurt. Like I did a writer's retreat just for a week. And again, because I'm supersonic, like I got a lot done because I'm like, I can't do that writer's retreat for a month. Like, that's not like you can't say, oh, my kids don't care. I'm gone for a month. Like, yes, they do. That's a lot. of. I mean, if it's a 16 year old, I'm sure maybe he or she won't care. But a younger child is going to miss you desperately for if you're gone for a month. But that doesn't mean maybe you can't go for a week or 10 days, you know, especially mm-hmm. if the kid is with grandma or auntie or somebody who's equally effusive and can really show that kid some love. So it is a balance. No, I don't like to use that word balance because that would seem that there's some sort of equality there. That's true, yeah. It's, it's not necessarily a balance. It's just figuring out what works and recognizing that these are like your books are your children and your children are your children. And if you have more than one, then you know that you have to balance that too. You can't, you know, you got to give kid A solo time and you got to give kid B solo time, right? Um, and then also if you look at some of the greatest writers, they had kids or some of the, maybe your most prolific writers. Some of them have a lot of kids. Like I think Jody Peacold has like, I don't know, four or five kids. Yeah. Got like 87 books. Like um, it's totally doable. It's totally doable. It's not something that's impossible at all. That's why that woman who said, you know, you're never going to be able to do it. That's not the message at all, but they're both very like soul thought consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. I think you're right. Um, what preconceptions did you have based on the way that your mother mothered you about what kind of mother you wanted to be? And are you that type of mother that you expected you would be? 
I tried. My mom said, like I said, she said such a good example. Yeah. I can't sew. I can't knit. I don't have any of those handicrafts that she can do. And that makes me very sad. Like I can knit and I taught my daughter how to knit. Like, but when I say I can knit, I know how to make like a long thing. It's not even a scarf. <laughs> it's just a long thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom could play the piano. Like she knew all the things that like women are supposed to learn how to do. And I mean, and she can, she can knit anything. She can sew anything. Um, she, she sewed herself a dress and then like she made my dolls dress out of the same material. Like it was so cute. She made my Halloween costumes. Um, so she was very creative and she literally was like, I don't understand why you can't do this. If there's direction somewhere, like my mom could fix a vacuum cleaner as long as she looked at the directions. Um, Although she did blow a hole up in the wall once to try it. She thought she fixed the vacuum cleaner and plugged it in. It was like, boom. But for the most part, if there are directions, she could figure it. She could hang wallpaper. She could do anything. But um, so like that, and again, like I said, she always made us feel very loved. She baked this lovely cake. She never used mixes for anything. Like everything was from scratch. So that's the kind of mom I wanted to be. And I think I'm close to it, but not as close. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. as, I don't think I'm as good of a homemaker as my mom. My mom knows how to fold sheets, so they're all smooth, you know. She knows how to do laundry, get the spots out. I don't I buy my kids all dark blue clothes. Like, <laughs> that's my secret. That's yeah. my tip. Um, and like, when my boys were younger, like, all their clothes look exactly alike, so I didn't even have to be like, which one is theirs? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, but I wanted to make my children feel loved, you know, like wanted them like, you know, like Valentine's Day um, where I make them a special meal. It's not about like, let me go out with my husband or let me, you know, it's about dating romance. It's like, I love you guys. Let's all have a special like I'll make cupcakes or something for them. Um, so I remember one time my mom, it was rain. I don't know why she did this. Like, I honestly don't know, but she just came home one day and for dinner, we put a blanket on the floor in our, um, we had like a sunroom and we put a blanket on the floor. It was raining outside and she had brought home a baguette, hard salami, brie and chocolate cupcakes. And we had like, that was our dinner. And it was just like, Oh my God, so cool. You know, I still remember that meal. I must've been like nine or 10 at the most. Um, and it was just so fun. So like she did cool stuff like that. And, um, she made sure that, we had all these really amazing experiences. Like she made sure, like we, my sister and I both studied abroad when we were in high school. Like we were exchange students. I was an exchange student to Morocco. My sister went to France and my mom never traveled like that, but she made mm-hmm. sure that we did, you know? So I learned like, that's what I got from my mom is to, you know, look, try to do more for my children then that's not even true. It's not anymore. I had a pretty awesome childhood. So I just wanted to give my children, you know, kind of the same types of experiences as much as I could. But again, I think the most important thing that my mom did was make me feel like I was not her everything in the sense that she had to sacrifice, but just that like I was loved, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what um I wanted to do. And also like this family, like family was so important. And that's what I've tried to do with my kids, too. Yeah. No, it sounds like you're doing all of those things, you know, in your own way, um, including writing books inspired by your experience with your children. Tell us about. So let's see. I'm just looking. I think was it. um, All right. Kinky Gaspacho. 
that was the one about um, you and your husband. And mm-hmm. yeah, so tell us just a little bit more about the story of Kinky Gazpacho and have your kids read it? Like, what did they take from it or what do you hope they'll take from it? <laughs> um, you know, after I, so I wrote that book, like I said, when I was, it was my second book. Kinky Gazpacho was my second book. Mm-hmm. And having my son, my first son, I felt like my husband and I met in Spain. I had always thought that I was going to live in Spain just because, you know, of high school fantasies and things like that. But when I, I spent my junior year of college in Spain and I had a wonderful experience, but I found it to be really um, difficult to be a black person in Spain at the time. And that was mostly because of just what we would call microaggressions today. That word didn't exist then, but this really like lack of understanding of the black experience um, wherever I went, you know, people would, I was in a smaller town, but everywhere I went, people would point at me and call me like negrita or chocolate. <laughs> like they would just like say stupid, stupid things to me. And um, I was used to being like the only black person in a space because I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to women's college in, in uh, Massachusetts, like being the only black person in space wasn't new to me. But being pointed at and stared at and called crazy names, not uh, these names weren't offensive, but like being called out on the street, like you're just walking down the street and everybody's going to be like, hey, look, it's a black person, you know, like what? Um, it was so annoying that I was like, oh, my God, I never want to go back to Spain, but I married a Spaniard. And then I had a child with a Spaniard, which made meant I was going to go back to Spain. So I was like obsessed with figuring out how, how do I reconcile my feelings because I don't feel positively about Spain anymore like I did as a naive you know high school college student um and so that's what I kind of set out to do was try to figure out how do I find something good about being black in Spain and so kinky gazpacho was kind of that search and it ended up with me discovering that Spain had a black history that Spain had African slaves not Moroccan people not Moors but an actually black African slaves of the same um, the same people who were enslaved in the United States were enslaved in Spain from West Africa. You know, it's like it's possible that my ancestors could also have, you know, relatives who ended up in Spain instead of in the southern parts of the United States. And that like unearthing that history, it wasn't just the history, but it was figuring out how much of Spanish culture actually derives from African culture, like the same culture where, you know, my ancestry is from was like a revelation. And I started realizing that there was a lot more of me in Spain. And um, that's the end of that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's me coming to terms with what does it mean to be black in general? And then what does it mean to be a black person in Spain? And, you know, ultimately, it's about, you know, it's your own, you define that for yourself, nobody can define it for you. And actually, I was <laughs> If it wasn't my life, I would want my children to read it. But it's embarrassing because I write all the embarrassing things, and I'm I'm not ready for them to know all of my flaws. You know, <laughs> like sure. I'm not ready for them to be like, "So you did what when you were in high school?" You know, <laughs> I thought you said, because <laughs> um, you know you gloss over some things in your life. You don't want your children to know all the things. Um, so, oh, I just speaking of children, I was supposed to just. I, I'm sorry. I'm pausing in the middle of this interview because I was supposed to. My son is supposed to be in a Spanish class as we're speaking, <laughs> and I was supposed to send him the link. 
which I forgot to do. So I'm literally just forwarding a thing because that's fine. That's what this is all about. So not a problem at all. About right? No, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, so um, the book Tinky Gazpacho. I haven't let them read it yet, but one day I will want them to read it. And actually, if my 19 year old wanted to read it, I'd be perfectly happy for him to read it. But I found like my boys are not that interested. They both read my first book, Hair Story. They definitely read that. And they've read parts of um, Same Family, Different Colors, which has some of our family story in it, but it's not so much me, um, you know, me personally. Um, but I want them to see that they have a connection, not just the fact that their father is Spanish, but that there's a black connection in Spain, too, because it's not going to be obvious when they get there. People in Spain still haven't kind of acknowledge their black history very much like there's no black history month in spain and people are not as like overtly racist as might you know there's not like people aren't gonna just automatically say oh we don't like you because you're black or anything like that but they're not necessarily going to embrace the brown skin and say oh yes we we know where this comes from or we know what it means to be black and we have some sort of appreciation for blackness in our country. So I do appreciate the fact that this book exists and that when they're ready, they can read it and, and have some, I guess, prep work done for them, if you will. And of course I, I tell them all this stuff. It's not like they have to read the book. They, they can get the crib notes from me. Um, so, um, but I want other people, particularly other black people. And I, I am happy to see that that book came out in 2008. I'm, Really happy to see uh, black women, particularly college students, you know, who are doing their junior year of college in Spain, people who are, you know, black women who are traveling to Spain, you know, reach out to me like, I read your book. It's so helpful. Thank you so much, um, which is great because I wrote that memoir because of it was inspired by um, Laureen Carey's book, Black Ice, because she was writing about what it was like to be a black woman at a white private school. It was a boarding school. but reading that made me feel so much better going to private school. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, someone who has the same like feelings as me and the same experiences. And I remember when Kiki Gaspacho, the day before it was about to hit store shelves, I literally like had a panic attack and like crawled in bed. I was like, nobody's going to want to read this. Like who's going to want to read this? Who, what are the black women in Spain? Like, this is so ridiculous. Like I can't even believe that they're publishing this book. It's so, and so Nobody's going to care. And the response to the book, besides these, like, over the years, you know, having different black women who are in Spain read it, so many people who just felt like a fish out of water or looking for their themselves in different places, you know, responded to me, which made me feel like, like, I write because I want to make people feel seen in some way, shape, or form. And that book really did that. It's not as specific as I thought. You know, that's the idea of memoir, right? The universality in these stories. So. Um, yeah, so that's, that, I wish I could give it to my kids because I know they need it. But for me, it's like nobody wants to learn from their mother, right? Like I, if someone else wrote a version of Kinky Gazpacho, I would get it for my kids in a second because we're actually, um, you know, we're actually, um, going to be moving to Spain soon. And that is, uh, something that I want them to be like mentally prepared for on a deeper mm-hmm. level. 
Yeah, no, and that leads into um, same family, different colors, too, and what you were saying about, so all of your kids have different skin tones, as you mentioned. Um, tell me about what 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 is it about that experience and about people's reactions to them and to you and to your husband that you were talking about earlier on um, that made it feel urgent to write this book? So um, I've been blogging since I've been a mother, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my my blog, My American Melting Pot, I think in like 2006. And when I would write about things that happened to me as a black mother who had children who looked not black, so many people would respond and be like, oh, my gosh, that's happened to me. And they weren't all black. You know, it was white women who had, you know, married an Asian man or an Asian woman who married a black man, you know, different, just all these different um, things. And so that was always like, I knew that I could write about that. I knew I could go to my like online community and have people understand what I was talking about. And for me, my books are always the things that just won't leave me alone. You know, the things that just keep coming up again and again and again. And just like Kinky Gaspacho, I thought this was a very finite thing that just a few people, you know, the people who read my blog, uh, connected with. But, uh, I felt like the conversation that I was having about my own family and these, like, you know, we were in a restaurant and the waitress was like table for two because my son and I were here and my husband was behind me with my daughter and my other son. And it was like, we're all together. Like we're literally standing all bunched together. And it was like, these things would happen so frequently, you know, where people just didn't make the connection that we were a family. I actually have t-shirts that say same family, different colors. And I'm like, put your shirt on. So we, everybody knows that we're together. Um, and these things just, just kept coming up, kept coming up, kept coming up. And then I would see them talked about in other situations. You know, I'd see transracially adoptive families have these types of conversations. Um, I would see, you know, a good friend of mine um, adopted a child. Like my friend is Korean and she adopted her daughter from Korea, but her daughter, her adopted daughter had darker skin than the other children in the family. And, other Koreans like would comment on it like very openly in a way that I was like, what (laughs) is that okay to do? You're not supposed to do that. And so I, you know, I'm seeing all of this, you know, it's coming together. It's connecting, it's making those connections. And because it was happening again in families that look like mine, families that look like my Korean friends, families that look like my black friends who were black, but somebody came out much lighter. Um, I'm like, there's something here. And every time, like I said, that it doesn't let me go, then I'm like, I got to do something about it. And really and truly, like at the very, very base of it is like, I wanted to ask everybody, how are you handling it? Mm-hmm. But I can't just knock on someone's door or attack them in their grocery store and be like, unless I have a book to be writing. Like I'm writing this book. Can Do you mind if I ask you some questions? And so it really was like my own need and desire to to ask other parents. How do you deal with this? As well as to ask people who I know who grew up like that, how does it affect you? You know, do you feel any kind of way because of the fact that different people, like your family members, were different skin tones? Were you treated differently? And there was the gamut of, nope, I feel fine. Everything is great to my brother's in jail. I'm a college professor. 
my parents treated my darker skinned brother like this and me because I'm lighter skinned like this and, and look how it's turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was living it, I recognized how significant this issue was. And what really was the like turning point for me was the Trayvon Martin, um, the Trayvon Martin court case. And when it's that felt like the beginning of open season of black men being indiscriminately shot, which, of course, it wasn't. It has been happening in the United States forever. But that felt like the time when you you had to explain it to your children. And especially if you had black male children, which I had two. Um, but one child looks black and one doesn't look that black. And that's when it hit me how serious of an issue it was, the fact that my kids don't look alike and that one is darker than the other. This is not just a, oh, haha, funny, maybe you should, one needs more suntan, sunscreen than the other. This is, how do you tell one child that they're a March man and the other one has the freedom and innocence of just being a child? Mm. That's not insignificant. Yeah. That's how did so- you approach that? How did you have those conversations? Um. I wrote the book and then I had conversations because I did a lot of talking and researching and having to go inside myself and figure out like, what do I really, there is no right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I ended up deciding, like how I dealt with it was to say, you know, both of my children are black, you know, the pigment in their skin doesn't designate them as black. So they both get the quote unquote talk. I have not, tr- at the time they were much younger. So I wasn't, instilling in them a sense of like, you know, I didn't tell them, you know, keep your hands on the steering wheel. I mean, that wasn't, that's not where they were, but like, I wasn't willing to be like, you can't wear hoodies, but you can. Like I did not want to create a wedge between my sons about who was privileged and who wasn't. Of course they're not blind. And as they've gotten older, they kind of joke about it. But one thing that I did do was make sure that we always acknowledged the differences. We didn't try to say, you're all the same. I mean, I like, I love you the same, but like, yeah, my older son looks more like me. My younger son, you know, we, you know, sometimes we joke and say like, you know, you go in the store because you look white. Go on. <laughs> you do it for, you go first or something like that. Um, and, and we do. We talk about like, well, whose skin tone looks like what and whose looks like this, who looks like that, who matches, who doesn't match. And, you know, I, we spent a lot of time normalizing the fact that our family members are all different colors and different hair textures. And then these fools go to the, they go to a new school together and people are like, are you guys twins? That's like, what? Here I am like, you guys are different. It's okay. You're different. And people are like, are you guys twins? They're three years apart. One's dark, one's white, one's, one's skinny, one's a little thicker. Like they don't look alike at all, in my opinion. And I mean, People are like Ernie and Bert. They don't look like <laughs> at all. Um, and people like, are they twins? Oh my gosh. So, which goes all the way back to this idea of like, you have to do what's best for your family because on the one hand, you could do nothing and it could backfire. But on the other hand, you could do all this prep work and then people think they're twins. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing is to make sure that your children feel confident and comfortable in the skin they're in, because for one reason or another, they're sure to be confronted about something about the way they look. And if you have instilled in them that they are perfect, this is the way that God made them or whoever you believe 
or however you say that, then, you know, then that's, then they're more prepared for whatever comes their way. And that's essentially what you want to do. And I think that was the takeaway from that book is that for all the people I interviewed, you know, some had really sad stories. The ones who had positive stories really could just attribute it to their parents making them feel perfectly normal, whatever skin tone they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just about to ask you how writing the book prepared you for those conversations. And I think you just answered that. Um, Yeah, unless you want to go a little more into that, like how do you remember a specific story that resonated with you that you thought about that you had in the back of your head when having those conversations specifically with your sons? Um, I think it was actually more with my, um, with my daughter because I think I felt it more painfully with my daughter because I think we all expect our same sex, same gender children to look like us in some way. And my daughter looks nothing like me she didn't when she, for the first like two years in fact somebody literally asked me if I adopted her from China they were like I didn't know black people adopted from China I was like um Whoa, they probably weird. can but my daughter's not adopted from China like they really thought she was Chinese like people thought she was so pale and her hair was so straight when she was born and for the first like six months seven eight nine months and then her hair kind of bent a little bit but I was like who is this baby? And how did I get her? Um, and so as she got older, you know, she would be like, she would pick up her hand, you know, and say like, you know, who do I look like? You know, and, and she would be, she would say things like that, you know, Poppy's pink. Like she wanted colors for everybody and she wanted us to be the same. And I wanted us to be the same, but we're not the same. <laughs> so um the Psychologist, one of the psychologists that I interviewed for the book, that was her term was to normalize difference, mm-hmm. normalize difference, make that, you know, like flowers in a garden. There's roses and daisies and tulips and they're all different colors. And that's what makes the garden so beautiful. And so, like, I find myself using a lot of that kind of phrasing when I would talk to her. And that's why we would do things like you're the color of a garbanzo and you're the color of a toasted almond. And what color do you think I am? And he would say like, you know, cinnamon dusted hummus, you know, (laughs) you know, so, so it became this thing of like, what do you think you're the same color is? And what are you the color of? So that's what we would do. And that's what we did for a long time. Always kind of at the dinner table. And the one thing she would just never like, never like Poppy could not be white. He was pink. He was pink or something, whatever, but it was never white. He was pink or couldn't he be, couldn't he be like light, light, light. My, my husband is super pale. My husband is like, you know, he's like, he could be your brother or sister. Like, I mean, he's your complexion, dark hair, mm-hmm. pale skin. And, um, everyone's like, he's Spanish or Russian? <laughs> like, he's Spanish, really, from the South, I swear. Um, but, um, my daughter just won't see him as white. Yeah, you know, because she wants us to all be some variation of brown. So she'll be like, 
He's like super light brown. I'm like super, 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 super brown. <laughs> yeah. Light, light brown. Um, but, but that did help that idea of normalizing difference. And, you know, the psychologist was like, when you do that, when they go out in the world, if somebody says, why does your family look like that? You know, they're like, why doesn't yours? Because for them, this is normal. And anybody who doesn't get that has some learning to do. Not, they're not going to make my daughter feel badly. They're just going to be, um, you know, like have to teach people this is just what we look like. And there's nothing bizarre about that. Yeah. So that, that helped me a lot. Um, because my instinct would be to be like, let's not, we all are kind of the same. We're all pretty much the same, right? We're all kind of like brownish, right? Instead of being like, no, no, you're, you're this color, you're this color, you're this color. And you know, that's kind of cool. Um, and that's, that's what it is. Tell me. So, um, you said that you started out writing your blog, um, American melting pot about a lot of these issues about race and um, motherhood. And then recently you moved away from that and you wanted to write more or talk more and write more about books. And you, I know that's something you wanted to talk about. And since we have a few minutes here remaining before the hour ends, tell me about that decision to move toward books. So, um, okay. So because of 2020 being the, um, just horrific experience that it was. I think, I mean, to say that it was stressful is an understatement, right? Um, and my blog has always been a platform to talk about race and racism, but in a approachable and accessible way. Um, I used to say that I like to celebrate diversity and obviously you can't talk about diversity without talking about race or racism, but that's not what my, my goal wasn't to talk about racism. It was to talk about diversity. And I launched a podcast to accompany the blog in 2018 with the same mission. But because the podcast felt a little bit more um, public facing, I guess, um, like I feel like I couldn't talk to people and not be mentioning what was happening in the world. And after George Floyd's murder and the I call it the Black Lives Matter 2.0 movement, um, I just felt it was my responsibility to really drill down on anti-racism work. And um, I did that. I did a, I mean, I did a special series called Don't Be Racist. Um, before that, I was doing like revolutionary reading series. I was doing all kinds of things to kind of come con- con- to combat the racism that seemed to be just oozing into this world after the presidency of, of Donald Trump. And, you know, when 2020 came to an end and everybody's kind of licking their wounds and praying that 2021 was going to bring some sort of hope, uh, um, relief, cure for COVID, you know, I just asked myself, like, I mean, I actually was preparing for my the next season of My American Melting Pot. You know, I was going to talk about different things about diversity. I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was participating in a like a challenge, like a creativity challenge. And question was asked, like, what would you like if you could do anything like write about, talk about whatever your creative thing is. And you didn't have to worry that it wasn't going to be money making or that people were going to judge you. What would you do? And it came to me like I would talk about books all the time. Like I just love books and writing. And if I could do that, I would. And I'm thinking, well, it's my podcast. I can, nobody's paying me to do it. So why don't you do that? Like, there's nothing stopping you. And then, but then it was like, but I have a responsibility to end racism in the world. 
Um, but I'm clearly not ending racism in the world. And doing a podcast, as I'm sure you know, it's hard. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of pieces to put together. And I just found myself not wanting to get into it because it just was like, ah, the, the heaviness. And so I love podcasting. So I decided to podcast about something I love to make it more enjoyable. And I'm just, my birthday was yesterday and which is, you know, close to the beginning of the year. And I'm like, what am I waiting for? Like retirement to like do something that brings me joy? No. So my podcast now is, um, I'm calling it Melting Pot Stories so that I don't change my URL. <laughs> it's like I have built up something around the Melting Pot name, so I didn't change the name. But it's a, I call it um, a literary love fest for multicultural books. And mm-hmm. essentially, um, we talk about multicultural stories. I have authors come on that have written about, like, um, authors of color and or people who are writing about, you know, different cultures connecting or clashing. Um, I have an author coming um, this Saturday. I'm interviewing Jennifer Steele, who wrote this wonderful novel called Exile Music. And it's about a Jewish family in uh, World War II Austria who ends up fleeing to um, um, Bolivia. And this is based on a true, not a true story, but on the exodus of um, Austrian Jews who ended up in Bolivia, which I never heard of that group of that um that connection and mm-hmm. so she'll be coming on this on the show and what i really want to do is like talk about the stories behind the stories right so not giving away the the ending of the books um not making it dependent on you having read the book for this to be interesting but really talking to the authors about you know what compelled them to write these stories the cultures that we're talking about in the books um and and then also I do a little just talking about books that I'm reading and literary tea in the publishing world. Um, and, yeah, I've only done three episodes so far with the new um, topics, but I'm so excited about it. Every day I think of, like, when I was doing my seasons before, I was like, okay, I think I can get eight seasons in before I got to take a break. Now I'm like, oh, my God, I have, like, 20 different things that I want to talk about. So I think I'll be on forever. Like, can <laughs> do two shows a week this is crazy because there's so much in my little head that I want to talk about and there's always something a new book um you know a re-release or somebody doing something like a book club there's another podcast that I just heard about that other people should know about you know there's your podcast like this do you call this a web series it's a web series I don't know what I call it it's a conversation series a conversation series so like this, you know, it's like just telling people what's going on. People like me who love books, like who geek out on books and writing. That's who my show is for. And, um, yeah, it just brings me joy. And I just want to, you know, spread the word and find other people like me who just want to hear about multicultural books. And they're books like kids' books, too, not just um, adult books, but kids' books, nonfiction and fiction. So I'm having, like, um Joanna... Ho, come on to talk about her new kid's book, um, Eyes That Kiss at the Corners, um, which is a lovely book. So anyway, that, I could go on and on and on because I have so many. I'm so excited um, to do this. And I hope my enthusiasm brings people to, you know, listen in. Oh, I, I definitely will be, although I have listened in. Remind me. I know I have it somewhere, but remind me of the um, the URL and I'll put it down here in the banner. Thank you. It's my American Melting Pot um, is the name of the show. 
Um, and the blog is myamericanmeltingpot.com, and you can find links to the show on the website, or you can find My American Melting Pot, the podcast, on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, like all the places. It's, all the it's places. There. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Everyone check it out. And thank you so much for coming on today. This has been so fun and just um, thought provoking. And thank you for your honest conversation and for your enthusiasm. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, It's been great. I love talking about writing and motherhood. As do I. And thank you all for joining in tonight, too. I know a number of you were out there. And for those of you who will be listening in or watching later, um, thank you for checking out the conversation. Um, so a reminder, you can watch the video again, listen to the episode as a podcast, or read the transcript on writermothermonster.com. Uh, you can also go to that link and find our bookshop um shelf where you can find Lori's books as well as the books by all of our other authors collected right there for sale on bookshop.com. And if you enjoyed the conversation, as always, please consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon. And thank you all. We'll see you next week. Lori, stick around for a second so I can say goodbye. And thanks, everyone.